Thanks for pressing play. If you love the serendipitous magic that can only occur in an authentic conversation, you're in the right place. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, the real dialogue oddcast for business leaders, entrepreneurs, and category designers with a different mind. On this episode, a riveting dialogue with two of America's favorite crime fighters. The hosts of the Game of Crimes podcast are here, Morgan Wright and Steve Murphy. Murph was one of the real DEA narcos who took down Pablo Escobar. The Netflix series Narcos is based on his work. Morgan Wright spent 18 years in state and local law enforcement as a highly decorated police officer, state trooper, and detective. He was even trained by the original members of the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit on Serial Crime Profiling, which led him to training spies and spooks at places like the NSA. If you're a crime buff, care about justice, and or care about the future of the United States, you're going to love this episode. Now, as work has become increasingly native digital, people are using Zoom for communication and Slack for collaboration, but have no apps for human connection. Until now. Airspeed has created the first collection of apps that work inside Slack to bring people and teams together on a personal level. From simple introductions to celebrating birthdays and sharing interests to virtual chats and hangouts, Airspeed's free Slack apps are used by leading companies like Adobe, Dow Jones, Lockheed Martin, Rivian, and thousands more. About 8 out of 10 employees, 82%, say they felt lonely at work, and 65% of workers say they feel less connected to their coworkers. Employee disconnection is one of the main drivers of voluntary turnover. And the Wall Street Journal says that employee loneliness is costing U.S. companies up to $406 billion a year. Not anymore. Go to GetAirspeed.com and learn how to produce a breakthrough in business results by connecting in new and powerful ways. GetAirspeed.com. Now, hey-ho, let's go. Now, Murph, just before we hit record here, you were starting to tell me something uh, shocking about Mexican gangs trying to wire laws in California and such. <laughs> so could you tell me what you were starting to tell me? Absolutely. We've uh, so on Game of Crimes, our little podcast. Uh, we're over two years now, believe it or not. I can't believe Game of Crimes is two years ago. It really it feels like maybe six months ago when Murph told me you guys were or when uh, Morgan told me you guys were going to get started, Murph. Well, remember you and I, when Javier and I came out there that time, we'd talked about this kind of stuff and, and then I ended up meeting Morgan and, and things developed. But so for the first time ever, we had a guest come on for the second interview. He's a former member of the Mexican mafia, goes by the nickname of Mundo. I'm not going to re uh, repeat his name or his real name because he's, there's a lot of people would like to kill him. And uh, one of the things we talked about yesterday was manipulation, how the Mexican mafia and other criminals in the California penal system manipulate the legislators to get laxer laws, to give them better food, to give them no responsibilities, to give them access to phones so they can conduct their criminal activities from prison. I mean, they, he said they sit back and laugh at the legislators in California because, you know, they've got the – it only takes a couple of do-gooders to step in and cause issues for everybody else. And rather than everybody else standing up to them, they're afraid that they'll get pissed off 
you know, so they, they go ahead and give in, and the criminals are the winners, and, the, you know, the honest, hardworking, taxpaying citizens of California are the losers. It's a shame. Uh, so I didn't know this. This is shocking. But the more I learn about the situation with laws, crime, justice, and criminal punishment in our country, and specifically here in California, the less shocked I get at how insane it seems to be. Let me bounce this one off both of you. I had a conversation uh, recently with a local police chief. And one of the things that he shared with me is, and I forget if it was in California Prop 47 or 57, but one of those essentially means, and this is how he explained it to me, that it's almost impossible for a person under 18 to suffer any consequences for a crime. And the example he gave me was they had recently arrested a 14 or 15-year-old for stabbing a rival gang member in the neck and almost killing him. Mm -hmm. And the punishment that 14 or 15-year-old attempted murderer got was three months wearing an ankle bracelet. Oh, there's a deterrent. So what this police chief further shared with me was he said, well, and this is how it plays out in terms of the fentanyl problem, which some people are saying is the largest killer of Americans under 50. I don't know if that's right yet. Maybe you'll tell me in a second. But here's what he told me that I want to bounce off you. He said the Mexican fentanyl gangs who are getting the drug from primarily China know this now about California. And what has happened as a result is an increase in uh, Latin children south of the border being trafficked into drug gangs because the gangs know that they get the, the kids to do everything, whether it's killing or drug muling or whatever other horrible thing that they're doing, moving money around, and that the, the, the trafficked child who's forced into this situation can be caught for distribution of drugs, trafficking, can be caught for murder, attempted murder, and all sorts of other horrible things. And they know that um, very little, if anything, is going to happen to them. And so this has increased drug gang child trafficking into America. What do you guys, do you guys know, you, you guys must know about this. Well, it's this has actually been going on for quite some time where they'll use young kids as lookouts, you know, at Back in the you know the New York City days when the mafia was running everything, the the local drug dealers would have the kids sit on the corner and they would just they'd yell out if they saw something that looked unusual, a car that's not you know not should not be in the neighborhood, uh, a white man in a black neighborhood, whatever the anomaly is, the kid would just yell out and it'd draw somebody's attention and that and it kind of you know it was almost like a little daisy chain so that there were the warning was going out before the whatever the suspicious item was got close to the bad guys and it, it wasn't so much that they kidnapped them like you're talking about or, or trafficked them into the crime they just they wanted to do that because it was you know i guess it was cool during that time and and you're coming from poor neighborhoods where people don't have a lot and somebody's actually paying them attention you know we we're uh, we're doing some interviews on uh, human trafficking and some of the different things that are going on now that that movie uh sound of freedom has come out we're, we're lining up some folks from uh, uh, Operation, Operation Underground Railroad, yeah. as well as some of the other trafficking groups that are out here. It's, it's like Mundo said yesterday, the way they recruit young people into their gangs, they show them attention. 
because in these poor neighborhoods, you know, either the parents, most places there's only one parent, that parent may be unemployed, may be a drug addict, or may be working four jobs. The point being, it's showing no attention whatsoever to raising that child. And children just want attention. I mean, that's, you know, you see yeah. how they act up. They act up out of, out of wanting attention. Even if, even if they get attention for doing something bad, it's attention. And so here you got these, these gangs. They recognize the value of that, and they show them some love. And, man, those kids will do anything for them. And, that, you know, the Mundo second interview, we haven't set a date yet. It'll probably come out here in a couple of weeks. But he lays it all out. There's, there's no secrets there. We all know this. It's just most people don't take the time to think about it. Yeah, and once that um, the cartels make more money off of human trafficking right now than they do drug trafficking. What, Morgan? Yeah, cartels make more money off of human trafficking than drug trafficking, uh, and it's it's a lesser risk for them too. And that a lot of people will say, "Well, look, we're stopping fentanyl because they're getting it at the ports." But we're talking about between the ports. There's still a significant amount coming in. But the point people are missing is, to your point, when these kids come in, not only are they being trafficked, they can be sexually trafficked, but they can be financially trafficked, or they can be, uh, you know, trafficked for, as you said, employment. Way back in the day, too, when it was the Crips and the Bloods, you know, big things going on, there's actually a term that came out of it. It's what you were hinting to. Back in the colonial days when the, you know, it was called the Minutemen, you know, the, the, we, we'd fight the British, right? Well, the, the gangs, that's why they like them. And that's it's still kind of called Minutemen. You know why? Because you can't keep kids in custody longer than a minute. They're released. They're turned around. Uh, and that's why that's the advantage of doing this, too. Once you relax the laws, and let me tell you, when you talk to Mundo, here's a guy who was an OG with the La M.A., Mexican Mafia. And when he said, when he talked about killing people, we talked about some of the murders he did, how he arranged contract stuff, you know, how he killed, you know, what he did in prison. And what he's telling, you know what he's telling you? He's giving you the recipe for how these guys are doing it. And if you don't want to do it, if you don't want your kids getting involved to it, it's bang on what you said. The intervention has to start early and often because if you don't, his path, he was an altar boy. And then it, he arrived at a path to where he could either stay on the good side, which is what his brother and I think cousin did. They became cops or he could go to the other side. And it's that age around 12 or 13 is the, one of the most critical times for a kid. If you don't get them then, uh, the, most of them come from broken homes, uh, single parent families, lower socioeconomic. They're on some kind of financial assistance, you know, don't have the support they need. And that's why when we talked about Julie Redkay, uh, the, the, we have her interview just came out, the National Police Athletic League, why it's so important to get these kids involved in stuff. But kind of going back to that, Chris, to uh, bring the point together, because I know how you like to take trails and go down rabbit holes. <laughs> but the reason that they're trafficking these kids, it's number one, it's a moneymaker. And number two, because it serves a economic interest that they have. And by the way. We should tell him, too, about John Norris. We just got through doing an interview with John Norris. John was wildlife officer for this great state of California. And it's it's what's happening with some of these kids that are being trafficked over. They're being used in illegal grow operations in California, which are running the people legitimately who, sh who should be doing legitimate business, running them out, the economic damage it's doing, the billions of dollars of water it's stealing, the, the pesticides and the everything that are going down there. John was featured, uh, uh, they did some TV shows about him, and then the murders of missing in Humboldt County, all the murders that are going on up there. These kids are the ones at the center point of all of this trafficking and stuff going on that are, that are enabling so many other aspects of the criminal enterprise. And what are they trafficking, like who, what are they trafficking them, trafficking them into? Sex, employment, 
drug operations. Like slave labor employment kind of thing? Basically, it's it's modern day slavery. Yeah. And I assume sex trafficking is basically slavery too. Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, um, they do this. The Chinese do the same things. They'll bring people over into massage parlors. They hold on to their passports and we have to work off your debt. You never work off your debt. They keep that up there until either, you know, you're just you age out or you die. It, this this stuff is going on. It is not a secret. Um, but to many people, many people don't want to don't want to broaden their vision. They, they just get in comfy in their nice little thing. But the reality of it is when you look out. Uh, in fact, I'll tell you what, episode 60, we had, we had a real survivor, Natasha Herzig, a real survivor of sex trafficking. Here's a girl from California. Parents, they were missionaries, good girl in school. I mean, good girl in school. They, they were rather affluent. Um, she gets groomed, she gets recruited, and she's kidnapped coming out of a restaurant doing her final interview. She thought something was wrong, kidnapped by a guy named Spider and trafficked for a year and a half. And what they did was they oh, they told her parents oh, as a sex slave, in- Morgan. Yep, mm-hmm. as a prostitute. Yep, right and out of they, San Jose, I believe it was. Yeah, not too far out of San Jose. And they and all you have to do is look up Spider S B Y D E R, I believe it is, and Natasha N A T A S H A. Um, that story is horrific. This guy ended up getting 130 years in prison for the shit he did. And that is going on in the United States on a regular basis. Not only happening inside the U.S. But we're bringing these kids in. And that's why I think The Sound of Freedom, that movie, is resonating with so many people because we're talking, there's two really vulnerable people in society, two classes. One is the elderly and one is the young, you know, everybody from, you know, the small kids up through the teens. And I think this resonates with people because this is getting at the heart of the people who are the most vulnerable in our society. Now, where do you guys, if we take a zoom out for a second, where do you guys think we are in America as it relates to? law enforcement, crime and punishment, uh, and and improving the station for people who might choose a life of crime because they're in a tough situation to help improve their station. So if you think of the, the way I might think of it, and if you think of it differently, I want to know the carrots and the sticks, right? The, the, the incentives to be a good person and the support to help me be a good person if I want to be, and the consequences and punishments if I decide to not be a good person, where do you think we are right now in the United States in, in if you will, the criminal landscape? Well, uh, that's a really broad question. So let's start from the punishment angle. The, so if you're caught, it seems like society has become so permissive. And this is you know Murph's opinion here. So permissive that anything anybody wants to do should be acceptable. You know, and if it impinges on other people's rights that, well, that, hey, it's my right. You know, you, you look at punishment when people do commit crimes, it's become so lenient that there is no deterrent from going to prison, it seems like, anymore. I mean, Mundo and those guys, you know, you talk to him about, he just, he talks about committing crimes like you and I would talk about where we're going to have dinner tonight. And and the fact that he's going back to prison, well, hey, I've got a lot of friends in there. And you know what? I'm a big dog in, in the Mexican Mafia, so people are going to kiss my butt in there. and. There's just no reason for him not to go to prison. It, it, I know it sounds crazy, but I mean, he'll tell you himself. Just listen to his interview. It's unbelievable. And and does he know, Murph, that he's going to get out pretty quickly? Is that part of this as well, that I might be going to prison, but A, I'm a big dog there. I got lots of friends there. And B, I'm not going to be there for very long, no matter what I do. Well, it did for a while until the last time. And it looked like he was going for life. 
And that one kind of got his attention. And, and as you'll hear in his story, you know, that's when he decided to cooperate and he negotiated a deal and he was completely off probation and everything. And, and he was a free man. But uh, so now go back to the, the carrot and the stick where where's the incentive to not be a criminal? I mean, you know my story, Chris. It I came I grew up in Tennessee and West Virginia. I'm like a cross between a redneck and a hillbilly. We didn't have a lot. We didn't go hungry, but we didn't have a lot, you know, we vacations, we went to visit grandparents. The beach, I didn't go to the beach till I was sixteen years old. And that was because my girlfriend's family took me when I graduated high school. Seventeen years old, I guess. Um so the point here being I didn't have the silver spoon in my mouth like some people do. But my my dad taught me what a strong work ethic is. And if you want to get ahead, you work for it. When I first got married, the first time, I was a city police officer in West Virginia making $9,600 a year. We had our first son. I worked for an electrician. I worked as an electrician's helper for one of the local firemen. I got the sports contract for the local state college in town. So the basketball games, I, I provided all the security for that, made a little money off that. I even sold Amway. Did you ever sell Amway? You get three. No, I get three. <laughs> I know. I know but, the multi-level marketing game as a, as a young person who's unemployed, trying to, as George Bush said, keep food on the family. That's right. That's right. It's it. And so the, the whole point of that being is, you did what you. I, I worked every off-duty job I could get. I worked as much overtime as I could get. You did what you had to do, and somewhere along the line, I was able to finish college. My first wife put her through college. And we still made ends meet. We lived in a little bitty two-bedroom, two dinky little house that probably wasn't even a 1,000 square feet. But it was home. It's what you make of it. So, you know, are you willing to step up and make the sacrifice and do what it takes to, to, to make it successfully what we would call, I guess, a successful business person, whether it's, you know, blue-collar, white-collar, it doesn't really matter. As long as you're successful in whatever endeavor you're pursuing. So when, when I have... Uh, I don't have a lot of sympathy for like my children. I have four kids. I've got everything from a an orthopedic surgeon to a house mom, you know, stay at home mom. And so when I hear whining coming from them, I don't have a lot of patience for that because I'm, I've been retired now for ten years from DEA. My wife will tell you I'm probably working as many hours now, if not more, than I did when I was an agent. I was a cop for thirty eight years, and you know, people say, when are you going to retire? Well, as long as you're doing what you love. Retire and do what? Retire. <laughs> I know it. But the- so now we're, Morgan and I got the podcast. Javier and I are still, we're in our eighth year of this, our, still our worldwide speaking tour. Uh, we're working on this project called The Lost You guys Clipper. are going to be on tour as long as the Stones if you keep going. Well, it's, uh, I, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I just, honestly, I don't know what I would do if I weren't doing this kind of stuff, but I enjoy it. Well, it's funny, you know, years ago, uh, when I quote unquote retired as an executive, I said I was retired. And funnily enough, I was on a speaking tour for my first book and I serendipitously uh, met, um, Bill Walton, the legendary basketball Mm -hmm. hall of famer. And he and I have subsequently become friends. And I'll tell you, there are very few things as legendary as Bill Walton on your text message or in your inbox because a note from him is is truly something That's extraordinary. Cool. Anyway, <laughs> he stuck his very, very, very large foot right up my uh, ass and he said, you're not retired. You're never going to retire. You're a teacher. You're a learner. You're a, and it, 
et cetera, et cetera. And I, so I stopped using the R word because he's right. Um, and I work a lot now that I'm retired. <laughs> I got to tell you a quick you... Bill Walton story. Yeah, so okay, great. I would love Mor- to hear Morgan and I. Did you ever Morgan arrest him? <laughs> well, this kind of, let, let's, let me tell you a story and see what you think. <laughs> we support the Southern California Gang Conference because it's, it's uh, quite honestly, it's one of the very, very few things I do for free. And, and, it's, and Morgan doesn't charge them either. And all the money they raise goes to the family of slain police officers from the previous year in Southern California, San Diego County. So, and this is, there's like, you know, 800 to 1,000 cops come to this week-long conference every year. And so I'm in the green room one day and, and uh, I was in there catching up on emails and I had my back to the door and I heard uh, Mel, who's one of the, the guy that orchestrates everything, I heard him come walking in. He said, and that's Steve Murphy from, from Narcos on Netflix over there. And I turned around. I went, oh, my gosh, Bill Walton? You know, I mean, he's, he's like as tall as the Empire State Building. And he said, hey, I just want you to know I'm not holding any drugs. And I said, get your big ass up against the wall. And he did. <laughs> <laughs> he's got a great sense of humor. He, you know, he carried his own chair in the city. <laughs> I mean, you just meet the guy and you love him. Oh, he's just—he's just a lovable. You instantly person. have to love him. He—he—he uh, he, he is like that. And and having him in my life, even a little bit as I do, uh, he's inspirational. He's motivational. He's funny. He's loving. Uh, he actually helped me through a very tough time in my life. So he's he got a huge heart. But uh, yeah, there's no mistaking that he's in the room because he's actually seven feet tall. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and here's a testament to to Bill. He came by on his own. I mean, he, they had invited him, but didn't charge anybody. And they had a ton of basketballs there. And he sat there and signed autograph basketballs. And they used them as door prizes for people. I mean, I, you know, I'd love to have a basketball for Bill Walton. I just couldn't figure out how to get it home. Well, you want to hear a story about Bill Walton autographs? Yeah. So when I met him at this uh, speaking event in San Diego, that he was also, I was the opening act and he was the closing act. Um, we exchanged books. And uh, so I, I autographed mine. He autographed his. We had this nice exchange. Anyway, he sends me a note afterwards and he says, um, what's your address? I want to send you something. So I tell him my address. And about a week later, a stack, I, I kid you not, Murph, this big of um, uh, reprints, color reprints of photos and magazine covers of Bill's entire career. Wow. Sports Illustrated covers, all kinds of them. Photos of him with all sorts of other people. Like this, like a fucking inches thick. And he signed every single one of them. Wow. And he sent that to me. He's, he's an incredible. Just a generous person. Yeah. Wow. Now. I love it. I'm, I'm really perplexed about crime in our country. Um, and, And I'll give you two recent ones. Number one, the murderer, the Manson murderer of the LaBiancas was Pete just... The LaBiancas, yeah. The, uh, Leno and, um, and um, Rosemary LaBianca. Mm-hmm. She was just let out of prison mm-hmm. by a panel of three judges in California. And I read what they said. And the argument, as I synthesized, it was essentially she's paid her debt to society. Actually, no, they didn't even say that. She's reformed herself in prison. She's been a model prisoner. She's an old lady, and she's no longer a threat to society, so we're letting her out. That was essentially, mm-hmm. as I understood the argument 
two out of the three judges who voted to let her out. Here's what there was no discussion of that I saw, and if it's there, I missed it. There was no discussion of punishment that when you brutally murder two people, your rights get taken away. You're no longer allowed to live a normal life. You have to be punished for that act, point A. Point B, there was no discussion in, 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 the, in the court proceedings that I could see and in the media thereafter that talked about justice for the family of the LaBiancas. As a matter of fact, the only article I read was in the LA Times where they interviewed um, some family members and they talked about how painful this was. That's point A. Point B, on the corporate white-collar side, Elizabeth Holmes gets sent to prison for 11 years. I didn't think that was anywhere near enough. She stole a billion dollars. And what she did to uh, patients, I think, is absolutely disgusting by manufacturing test results. Well, she's in jail for roughly uh, less than three months. And an announcement comes across that her sentence has already been reduced by two fucking years, from 11 years to nine years. Murph, Morgan, what the fuck is going on? Let me weigh in on something, because I was, I, you know, I tracked that. You were talking about the Tate LaBianca murders. You go back to Helter Skelter. You know, you, you see, the to your point, how grisly it was. One of, the, one of the victims was pregnant. You know, we look at this. What's happened was it's the dumbing down of America. And, and to your point, this is when we desensitize this. It actually incentivizes people to say, I could commit a horrendous crime. Um, and I could get away with it because you know what else was missing in that discussion, though, Christopher? It was the discussion of what was the impact on the victims? What, what, what about the families? What about their rights? What about the impact to other people who have been murder victims and how this is treated. She was she received a life sentence. Now, if a life sentence doesn't mean a life sentence, then what then what does it mean? Um, if you're in there for life, you're in there for life. Hey, great that you reformed yourself. Um, find something constructive to do inside this prison, Skippy. We're we're for you. The the thing with Elizabeth Holmes that pisses me off about that when you think about Theranos and the false hope she gave to all of these people, we're gonna do blood testing and the scams. You know what's really amazing about that too, Christopher, is all of the big names she scammed to pull in on that um, and how these people just became an echo chamber. Well, so-and-so is doing it, so I guess I should do it. Uh, she violated – this for me is what it gets down to. It's the trust. She violated the trust that people had, um, and this is what our adversaries do. This is what other – they violate the trust we have in our system. They, they attempt to – create divisions in our faith about the system. For example, that's one of the things Russia's great at with their active measures, disinformation, um, not just misinformation, but disinformation, you know, an intentionally wrong information designed to uh, obstruct and, and do things. And it makes people then question the result. It makes people question the fairness of the system. So if people go, if I, you know, I can't, I can't get a fair trial or I can't get this or, well, I'm going to go out and do this because if she can steal a billion dollars and get 11 years reduced down to nine, Dude, I'll just go shoot up a grocery store. You know, what the hell? Do you know there that Judge Davila, the judge in that case in San Jose, California, in his closing statements, expressed sympathy for her, talked about what a smart and dedicated and driven and motivated person she was. And if only she had focused, blah, blah, blah. He had all this sympathetic shit for her. Mm -hmm. And here's the other part I don't understand, whether it's about... Um, the LaBianca's killer, 
or whether it's about the sentencing and now reducing of the sentencing of homes. There's no outrage. And, and I talk about this stuff a lot, guys. I was at a party on Sunday night and I brought up the fact that crime has been legalized in California, that the average rapist in California serves three years, that the average murderer in California only serves 15 years, and that in the, the county that I live in, this just happened, a fentanyl dealer was caught with enough fentanyl to kill approximately 2,000 people and was let out on $20,000 bail. This guy's 60 years old. He's been a lifelong criminal. He has no other means of support. So when the judge lets him out, what's he doing? I know for a fact he's doing he's it again, dealing again right the fuck now. Mm-hmm. And this goes on and on and on and on. And you bring this up at a party, it's the greatest way to not make new friends. Nobody wants to talk about this. Their eyes glaze over. They think you're some right-wing maniac. And they don't want to have a conversation about the fact that where I live, you have a one in 200 chances of being involved in a violent crime. Mm -hmm. They don't want to talk about San Francisco. They don't want to talk about Portland. They don't want to talk about Seattle. They don't want to talk about Oakland. And they don't want to talk about Los Angeles. San Francisco is a fucking hellscape. If you write about that, like I have recently, you're going to get a lot of people angry. It's a fuck. It's the zombie apocalypse in San Francisco. And I'm not exaggerating. I love San Francisco. I worked there for years. I spent tons of time there. I know what it was like in the 90s and in the late 80s. And I know what it's like now. And it's fucked up. And yet you bring any of these topics up. And, and all of a sudden, you're like a, you're, you're a pariah in the conversation. So why is it, A, we can't talk about this? And when we try to, uh, essentially, my experience is I get shunned. Well, let me just address the uh, giving somebody bond. There's two considerations when you give somebody, if they've committed a felony, as to whether they qualify for bond. One, are they a flight risk? So are they going to come back and report for trial? You know, are they going to leave the country? So that's one. The other is, do they pose a danger to the community? Well, if you cut that much fentanyl and you have no other means of income, where do they think he's going to get the money to live off of? Murph, this guy was found with 15 semi-automatic weapons. He's a convicted felon. The possession of a weapon by a convicted felon is another Mm -hmm. felony. He had an arsenal of ammo that you could go to war with, plus all the drugs, plus $15,000 of ill-begotten gains. So what's your point, Christopher? The judge well, I mean, let him out him? immediately. <laughs> and that's my point. He's on our saying. streets right now with guns and weapons. Oh, and, and, and you know where the failure fentanyl. was? Part of the failure, and this is why people don't want to work. Sometimes they don't want to work with the federal government. We've all had our issues. But that guy was a candidate for what they call a 924C case with ATF. Five years minimum. Five years minimum for being a felon in possession of a firearm. You could have hooked him up federally, prosecuted him, uh, you know, removed these people. It has become, to your point about being a pariah, if people knew your background like we knew your background, you are the farthest thing from a right ring rifle carrying Christian farmer, you know, conservative way over here. What you are, though, is, and you know this too, you have been a victim. You've been a victim of crime, Tushar. 
We talk about the impact that when you when you see it up front and you see what it does to you, it changes your perception of the way the society looks at it. And it's about these things have consequences. When you let somebody out with no bail, what does that tell people? There is no incentive not to go out and commit a crime. If you've just had to put your mortgage, your house, and put it on the market for a hundred thousand dollars, and if you screw up, you're going to lose that hundred grand. You kind of you, you kind of want to toe the line, but there is no consequence for this. And I'll tell you what, you talked about Twitter. You want to see what it's like in California? Scroll through Twitter and see all the people walking in and doing shoplifting. They just go in there with a trash bag and they steal everything off of there. Mm-hmm. And there's the only people doing anything about it are, are are the citizens now. And but you mentioned. Let me finish with this. You mentioned where's the outrage? Let me put this in context. I get I get the whole George Floyd thing, but where was the outrage when businesses were burned down, when other people lost their lives? Where was the outrage when in Chicago on every weekend, 20 to 50 black kids, young kids are shot or killed every single weekend? Where is the outrage around that? Where is the outrage around the people being attacked in New York on the subways? You know, just indiscriminately. Where's the outrage of the guy who pushed the lady onto the tracks and was run over by a train? Where's the outrage around the largest increase in in Asian hate in recorded American history? Where's the outrage around the largest increase in anti-Semitic behavior uh, in American history? Luckily, that... You know the number one victim of, of hate crimes in the United States? Who? Jewish people. Yeah. Look at the FBI stats. The Jewish people have the highest recorded number of hate crimes. It is not is not Muslims. It's not Islamics. It's not all the other. In fact, a lot of those have gone down. The number one target, to your point, for hate crimes in that area. And by the way, the CDC says we have the highest murder rate in the last 100 years. You want to talk about a pandemic or an epidemic? And I'll tell you, here's an interesting thing in your area, Oakland. The NAACP chapter in Oakland finally came out and said, you guys got to quit this defunding the police shit. Here's, here's the argument that is the reverse logic. A lot of people think um, that white guys like me and Murph, you know, we just want to be law and order because we want to, we want to be racist. Here's what's racist. When you defund the police, guess who the biggest victim is when you defund the police? Are minorities, the people on the margins of society, the underprotected, right? And so what happens when you don't fund the police? The biggest victims tend to be the same people who actually want the police in their neighborhood. So now you've got these people coming out. So if it was really a master plot, to be racist, you wouldn't have guys like me and Murph go, well, let's fund the police. Our thing would be keep the police defunded. Guess what? The only people getting hurt are you guys, not anybody that looks like me. But there are people like us saying, and to your, and you, Chris, too, you fall into this category. You kind of look like us. You got the, well, I don't know how much gray hair you got because you got your damn hat on. No well, I got no hair, but if you look closely, you can see I, I, I can see it. I haven't yeah. shaved this morning, so you can see all the gray in my beard. <laughs> yeah. But, but my point is, is that, but we all are saying this, why we all have a different perspective, but you've got a real on the ground perspective because you know what it's like to lose a friend. You've seen the impact it has on communities. It's where is the outrage? It's, it's what happens is it's a pendulum. Life is a pendulum. We go one way and we do things like that. I don't want it too liberal, nor do I want it too strict. You know what? We've got to find that squishy middle that says, hey, we're willing to accept some of this, but we're not willing to accept this. Um, well, and, and, just, and here's the I'm part outraged. that I think yeah. has been missed. You, you guys tell me you're the experts. If you take the simple notion, equal justice for all, it's a tenant in our society. It's a, it's a tenant in our laws. Yes. Yep. Yes. Equal justice under the law. Now, what, what do I think that means? 
I think that means that police are not allowed to illegally target racial groups. And I think police that do should suffer the consequences of that. And all the good cops I know, like you guys, don't want there to be racist bad cops. Right. So equal justice means equal justice for all. And you can be for strong justice, strong punishment for those who do evil. And you can also be for equality, diversity, and I grew up in Canada. We have social programs in Canada. I'm not saying Canada is perfect, far from it. But what I am saying is I want social programs for people who need help, for people who are homeless who want to improve their station in life, for people who are on drugs and want to get off those drugs. Of of course I do. And I also want for criminals, I have a friend who's a criminal. He was a jewelry uh, store uh, robber and he would show up with an unloaded weapon, put it in people's face and steal from the jewelry store. Well, he got caught and he spent nine years in jail for it. And I said to him, what did going to jail do for you? And he said, well, I'm never going to be a criminal again. And I said, why? And he started to explain to me how much jail sucked. And this guy got reformed legitimately. And he has a straight job now. He's done incredibly well for himself. He's an entrepreneur and he's transformed his life. So I don't want there to be recidivism. I understand that most criminals are going to come out of jail. And I understand, I don't want to say this person's name for obvious reasons, but I understand why we want to have a benevolent, supportive society and programs that I'm happy to fund with my tax dollars to help people coming out of jail who've done wrong, who have paid a real debt and now want to do right. So my point is, can't we be benevolent and tough at the same fucking time. Why is this a choice that now has shown up that I believe is a false choice? There's, you know, there's absolutely nothing wrong with helping somebody. Some people need a helping hand legitimately. A lot of people. Now, some people will take advantage of it. We all get scammed all the time. I just got scammed on a Zelle thing. Just trying to hire somebody to put a fence in my freaking yard. Um, but there's absolutely nothing wrong with helping others. I think we have that, you know, if you're a Christian, if you believe in Christianity, which I do, you know, we have a responsibility there to help others, to those who much is given, much is expected. But when you talk about, like you're talking about the cops, the vast, vast, vast majority of cops took the job because they wanted to help people. Regardless of what you think, you know, if you got the ticket, you probably hate the cops. Well, I, I'm not real happy when I get a traffic ticket either, but you know what? I deserved every one I ever got. And I know there's a, there's probably a hundred times I got away with stuff that I didn't get a ticket. So how can you complain about that? Let's talk about driving but that IROC Z uh, northbound uh, into Miami there, Murph. <laughs> yeah, the statute limitation right now on that, so we're good. <laughs> but one thing that Morgan and I say on Game of Crimes regularly is nobody hates a bad cop more than a good cop. So when the cops screw up, you know, if you're legitimately breaking the law, knowingly doing it, you, you, you know, your butt should go under the jail because you took an oath. You picked up a title called a public servant. That means you serve the public. That's not a derogatory term. I mean, quite honestly, I look at it as, as, a, as a term of endearment because I chose with for 38 years of my life, I chose to serve the public. Right. And, and, you know, I mean, I feel like I did a good job. I'm sure that I get a lot of hate mail sometimes on social media. People want to cut my head off and crap down my throat and 
they want my kids to die of cancer. Because they stuff think like half that. of narcos is true that you threw people out of helicopters and <laughs> did all this shit. But on your on your the newsletter just came out today. You put a section here that I love. It says cops, lawmakers, social services, government services, and district attorneys work for us. Absolutely freaking true. They're all public servants. It's it, you're here to serve the public. So when they let and and I'm about as apolitical as you're ever going to be. I, I hate politics. Uh, the, I'm just so disappointed with what goes on on Capitol Hill now. And I don't give a damn if you're right wing, left wing, or right down the middle. We ain't getting shit done in our country right now. Um, we're divided more so than you know probably we have been since the Civil War. It's outrageous what's going on. But if you take that oath to to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States and its citizens live up to that freaking oath. I, like I told you, I've been retired from law enforcement for 10 years now. I feel like just because I retired doesn't mean my oath ever expired. I'm still going out trying to do things. We're trying to get the awareness of law enforcement out to the public through our podcast. Uh, just got just yesterday got invited to be the keynote speaker at the Orlando Police Foundation Gala this year, which is their you know, once-a-year huge fundraiser. I mean, what an honor to, to go do something like that. Uh, the people that we're meeting through the the podcast, Julie Redkay is an unbelievable person. I got, when she was still with Big Brothers, Big Sisters, I got to go with her and speak at their national conference last year in Indianapolis. And and for the first time ever, as I've gotten to know Julie, I asked her story and she told me about how she grew up. And I would have never dreamt that. I mean, this is a little bitty, little spitfire of a, a young lady, just cute as a button, got her law degree. She's extremely successful now. So I convinced her, I said, listen, when I come up on stage, I'm going to tell the Escobar story, but I'm going to give a redacted version because I want you to tell your story. Would you consider doing that? And she thought about it, thought about it. Finally, she, she calls me back. She said, hey, okay, I'll do it. You know, she put some slides together for a PowerPoint. When I finished my story, I got, you know, nice applause from the audience. When Julie finished her story, there wasn't a dry in the house and everybody was on their feet. So, you know, circumstances, you can let circumstances define your future or you can overcome your circumstances. It's all, in my opinion, it's all what you're willing to do within the law. I'm not advocating breaking the law on anything. It goes against everything I stand for. Let's not go rogue here, Emmer. I was going to say, let me add one thing to what you said, Christopher. You mentioned it. Murph, you kind of said it at the end. People throw too much weight that it's the fault of the police. There's two other, there's three other areas you got to look at. You got to look at the courts. You got to look at the district attorneys. I can only bring a case. If you choose not to prosecute that case or you choose to make a plea bargain or you choose to let people out, that's not something law enforcement has control over. That's the district attorney. You know, it's the courts who give the sentences. But to me, what it really boils down to, it's the fourth thing. It's the public. If you want to know somebody who bears responsibility, it's the public who has the responsibility to obey the law. If you don't like the law, which we talked, we we're joking about weed at the front, right? If you don't like the law, what did the voters do? They changed the law. They voted to change the law. That's how you do it in a civilized society. Now, would Murph and I have voted for that? No. Do we agree with it? No. But here's the thing. We're a nation of laws. So if the law's changed, that's great. If, if a law changes that benefits me, that's great too. But I'll tell you, here's the thing people ought to listen to. Uh, I was a member of the International Association of, of Chiefs of Police, their community policing committee, for many years. And it was based upon the original father of community policing, the father of the London Met, Sir Robert Peel. And I just want to read you one thing. It's called One of the Core Ideas, Chris. But there is nine Peelian principles. And actually, one of them says, 
um, on, on the uh, on the place that says, uh, to maintain at all times a relationship with the public that gives reality to the historic tradition that the police are the public and the public are the police, the police being the only members of the public who are paid to give full time and attention to duties which are incumbent upon every citizen in the interest of community welfare and, ass and assistance. But let me read this one core idea, because to me, this is what it gets down to the core. This is the people why they have the wrong idea. The goal of preventing crime, the goal is preventing crime, not catching criminals. If the police stop crime before it happens, we don't have to punish citizens or suppress their rights. An effective police department doesn't have high arrest stats. Its community has low crime rates. This came from 1829. Whoa. This thinking has been around from 1829, and yet we don't have enough people that believe in community policing to say, how do we work together? Which you did, Christopher. You engaged in community policing during uh, Tushar's uh, incident with the DA, with the sheriff's office. Yeah, and um, we told the uh, local law enforcement who was trying to uh, solve his murder that we would do anything and everything in our power to support them. Mm -hmm. And we did. And interestingly enough, and they caught the four evil who murdered my beloved bro adopted brother nine months after they committed one of the most heinous acts you could possibly imagine. Subsequent to that, I've ended up developing quite a relationship with many of the law enforcement leadership here in our community, not just the agency that caught the four evil. And I've had this aha, and this is another thing I really wanted to bounce off of you on this exact uh, thread, Morgan, which is um, law enforcement can only do what the society wants it to do. And they can only be as good as the society engages with them on it. And to your point on community policing, I live in a community, for example, we're a beach community. And in Santa Cruz, you're, it is illegal to A, drink on the beach, B, smoke pot on the beach, and C, have a fire on the beach. We do all three of those things on a very regular basis. And the cops drive by. Sometimes they walk by. And this is where discretion matters. Because the real law, and everybody here understands it, th those laws are in place to stop bad people from doing bad things. But if you're a group of people who are respectful and you're not hurting anybody and you clean up your beach fire, you get left alone. Mm -hmm. And the cops can tell the difference. And theoretically, we're breaking a bunch of laws and everybody in Santa Cruz knows what the real law is, which if you're Fonzie, the cops are Fonzie and vice versa. You know, I mean, you hit the nail on the head with one word discretion so when i was 10 years old i had my first run-in with the police in tennessee camping out in the summer with my buddies we get you know one o'clock in the morning we get on our little bikes and we're riding around the community there's an all-night laundromat you know we go in to get a soda and some peanut butter and crackers and nobody's got any change and one guy says hey let's go break into my house you know i got some i got some change in my room we all thought that was a great idea not realizing that his dad probably would have shot us if he'd heard us outside but as we're outside getting ready to break into his house, lo and behold, a police car comes up, shines that bright spotlight on us. I mean, we were the deer in the headlights. I'm not kidding. We were so scared we didn't even run. Two police officers come over. They ask us what we're doing. We explain everything to them. And they said, boys, you've got a decision to make right now. You either decide to go to prison for the rest of your lives 
or you decide we take you home to your parents. And we all looked at each other and said, put us in jail. Because <laughs> I knew what was going to happen when I got <laughs> Your home. mom, your dad was going to be a lot worse than prison. <laughs> oh, it was terrible. I don't think I sat down for two weeks, man. And I certainly didn't camp out till the following summer. But <laughs> that was a police That was two police officers using discretion, realizing the totality of the circumstances. We weren't criminals. We were just stupid little kids. Now, Fast forward to the 1970s. I'm a uniformed police officer, 1976. I'm a uniformed police officer in West Virginia. I'm in the State Police Academy. I get to come home on weekends. Come home, a buddy, hook up with a buddy of mine that's off duty. His name's Jackie. Uh, a friend of ours works in a gas station. He calls us and says, hey, come by here. I got something for you. So we go by the gas station. He said, there's a, there's a kid riding around here that's selling pound quantities of weed. And in 1976 in southern West Virginia, that was a lot of dope. We said, well, call him and order up. He does, and the kid said, I'll be right there. This kid's 17 years old. So we hide in the back of the gas station. He brings him around back. Sure enough, he, he gives our buddy the bag of weed. We step out of the closet. There was no slamming to the ground. There was no guns drawn. I stepped out of the closet and looked at the kid and went, how you doing? What you got there? Took the bag of weed. We pulled out a little test kit, put a little weed down in it. Sure enough, tested positive. Said, you're under arrest, kid. So we take this 17-year-old up to the station. Well, now he's a juvenile, so we call his dad. His dad came up, and after talking to his dad for a few minutes, we knew the punishment this kid would receive at home would be much worse than ever going to jail. And we didn't even charge the 17-year-old with a pound of weed. You know, all these years later, about a few years ago, when I, was, when I retired from DEA, you couldn't find me on social media. Well, then, you know, we get our speaking business, and Morgan and I get our thing, and Narcos came out, and now we're all over social media. And on Facebook, there's a guy on there, and I saw his post, and he said, I keep telling you guys, this is the guy that arrested me when I was 17 years old. He's the coolest dude in the world. And so I started looking into this, and the, this 17-year-old kid became an extremely successful businessman in West Virginia who retired at age like 55 because he had done so well in the legal business. And to this day, he still sends me a note every once in a while. Says, "Man, thank you so much for you know for using some common sense, not being like the cops of today." And it's not that the cops don't want to use discretion and use common sense. You know, the problem is we all know common sense is not common, but they're that's frowned upon. You know, people want to look at the law as black and white. You got to look at the totality of the circumstances, and then you make a decision. You are so right, Murphy. It's not even 50 shades of gray. It's a thousand shades of gray, yes. and it all depends yeah. upon what goes on. You know, what's the time of day? Is this your first fence? One one quick story. What I what I learned from another cop that I used to do with kids that had their – they were good kids, but just – like I had a German father tell me one time, I don't know what it is about my boy. He puts the key in, turns the car on, and turns his damn brain off. But I, what I would do is I'd do a couple <laughs> things. Like I'd write a ticket, and I wouldn't put a court date on there. I'd have him sign. i said, I'm going to hold on to this ticket. It was informal diversion. If you don't screw around for like the next six months, I'll you, you get with me, I'll tear up the ticket. And we would do that. And it was like, or I'd catch him with beer, and I'd say, okay, here's what we're going to do. You're going to go pour out the beer. You know, they, they'd have like a 36-pack back when they used to sell those huge things. And so they started to take the 36-pack over. They said, oh, no, 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 friend, you misunderstood me. One beer at a time. So I would make one of them go up, yeah. come back. I'd make the next one go up. We'd spend like 45 minutes out there, but we wouldn't put it on their permanent record. you know. And I right. think what's missing is this whole sense of community. What you did out there goes back to a lot of the principles. It's about the sense of community. It's about the people banding together, say, hey, look, we're part of this community. 
We may not get paid, but we have the same responsibility to preserve our community, protect crime. This is the problem with when you don't have three things, language, border, culture, you don't have a nation. You've got to have people that come in that have a proprietary interest in the area they live. I, I live here now. I want this to be good. Why does San Francisco look like a shithole downtown? Because these those folks that are there don't care. They have no interest in it. Whether It doesn't matter if they're a property owner or not, but hey, it's like, I've got a car here. I've got a business here. Or I go to school here. They don't, what happened to taking pride in where you live and, you know, and, and, um, doing stuff like that, right? So I think that's, we're going to have to have, what's going to have to happen is the great reset is going to happen at some point. People are going to get to the point. It's starting in Oakland. By the way, you, you recall the DA in, in, uh, uh Francisco. Why? Cause he, he was, he was way liberal. Chiesa Bodine wanted to just let everybody out of jail. And, yeah. Mm -hmm. And look, I, I understand at the core, why some people think this, they, they believe in benevolence. They want to take the background of the criminal into account because they were raised in a certain situation. They were not, you know, they were disadvantaged, et cetera, et cetera. I understand the, the, the heart part of this. And when you murder somebody, I don't give a fuck how you were raised. I don't give a shit what neighborhood you came from. I don't care what abuse you suffered because you know what? I know people who suffered unimaginable abuse as children who grow up to become angels on this earth. And so there's this weird thing about wanting to be a benevolent society equaling anybody can do anything. And I tell people here in California, guys, theft is legal. And they say, what are you talking about? And I said, okay, let's say you own a $100,000 vehicle and that vehicle's stolen. Call the police and see what happens in California. Fucking nothing. To your point earlier on, why are all the stores uh, shutting in San Francisco? Because if you're legally allowed to steal everything and you're not allowed to have a security guard there that can take action then what are you going to do? And by the way, even if you are allowed to have a security guard, do you and I want to walk into Walgreens or Nordstrom's or I don't know what and see two guys standing there with fucking weapons and, and bulletproof vests and stuff? This is not the world that we want to well, live in. They're even locking up everything inside the stores. You go in there, everything's chained up, right? It goes back to, but it goes but back I, to I don't understand why work. people have conflated wanting to be benevolent, wanting to help those in need, wanting to even give chances to those people who've done wrong. I, be I believe in all of those things too. Why that equals theft is okay. The average murderer, 15 years. The average rapist, three years. The average fentanyl dealer, three years. Everybody gets paroled, et cetera, et cetera. I don't understand the calculus in this thinking. If, if they were the victims of the crimes... If it was their family member that was murdered or died from a fentanyl overdose because of counterfeit medications or it was their business that items were being stolen from, if this directly affected them, would do you think they'd feel different? I do. Look, I sure hope so. I'm, I'm not that forgiving of a person, to be honest with you, not when it, when it would come to something like that. Well, and I'll tell you, n not only that, we know because of where we live that the four evil that killed our beloved friend, we will have to fight forever to keep them in jail. Mm -hmm. First of all, the trial hasn't even happened. Okay. It's been four fucking years. 
because delay, 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 because nobody has more rights in California than a criminal and particularly a killer. So delay, delay, delay. Who knows when the actual trial will take place? Assuming it does take place eventually, no matter what they're sentenced to, even if they're all sentenced to life without the possibility of parole, as the LaBianca's killer was, she still fucking got out. So we live in this bizarre world, Murph, where you can suffer the loss of a, of a life taken of an extraordinary person who many people loved for no fucking reason, no provocation whatsoever. And you know that, A, the likelihood their murderers face justice is low, and B, even if they do get sentenced, and even if they get the maximum sentence, life without parole, if, they're, if, if, if the state of California is willing to let out the killers of the LaBiancas, they're willing to let out anybody. Let me address one issue. You talked about benevolence. Why is that? Here's what I think has happened. Here's where I think people have forgotten. The old Christian saying was, hey, turn the other cheek. Well, there's only two cheeks, right? So once you get to the second one, it's like, okay, Skippy, we're done. Time to teach you a lesson. It's like, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I think what's happened is we've allowed, we, we have removed the limits on what our tolerance is. We've allowed we've allowed people to keep doing things as opposed to saying, look, we're benevolent. If you've got a if you've had a hardship, uh, look, I'd even be supportive. If you've got somebody that says, I'll give you an example. Um, a kid that is now a good friend of my son that has grown up to be a father, a great husband. When he was 17, him and an 18-year-old kid were involved in some strong-armed and armed robberies. And when I brought this kid in, his name's Eric, I won't say his last name, but when I brought this kid in, I'm kind of like, this is your come to Jesus point. I'll go to bat for you, but you got to give it up. You got to you got to tell me what happened. This is your chance. And I explained to him, I said, I can't make you any promises, but you're a juvenile. You come clean. You do these things. I will go to bat for you with the county attorney to say, hey, look, let's keep it as a juvenile offense, which means when you turn 18, you can legally say never been arrested. Right. As opposed to the other guy, he was a prick. I jammed it up his ass. I mean, it's like I did everything I could to make sure. And he did go to prison. But this other kid, he got religion. And I don't mean specifically like this, but he got religion. He said, no, I, he he had his thing. But because the law said, look, we're willing to do this. But even as a juvenile, you fuck up again and do this again. We're going to hammer you with it. Yeah, you get you get jammed with it. We have a, we have taken that away because we've got prosecutors in there that are not willing to go back and file those cases. I can arrest you all day long, Christopher. But until the D.A. files the charges, unless it gets to court, it's irrelevant. But here's what I hear from D.A.s. So I understand that. Cops say, well, I don't want to arrest people because nothing's going to happen. DAs say, well, if I bring the case, given the evidence, given da-da-da, yada-yada, um, we have such, uh, these are my words, pro-criminal um, judges, there's no point. And so there's this weird chain of apathy that happens that says, because our laws are decriminalizing crime, because... In California, many sentences are immediately cut in half. Yep. Uh, Prop 57 and 47 said, for example, with um, uh, drug crimes, every, every uh, criminal on trial for a drug crime, regardless of whether this is their first one or their fifth hundred, hundred one, is going to be char charged and, uh, uh, and um, sentenced as if it was their first so there have been all of these steps to uh, legalize crime, decriminalize crime, lower punishment. 
And so at the end of the day, if I'm what either of you guys were early in your career, a young cop, and I say, well, um, if I if I arrest this person for breaking and entering with a weapon, at least in the state of California, I know nothing's going to happen. So I might as well focus on things that I think will make a difference as opposed to doing all this paperwork, doing all this other work, knowing full well that the DA is not going to do anything and the DA is going to blame the judges and the judges are going to say, well, that's the law. And round and around the rosy we go. Mm-hmm. You know, the, I don't agree with the police officers um, refusing to charge people when they have a case because that's your job. You're law enforcement. You're not a legislator. You don't create the laws and you're not the judge and jury to determine guilt and innocence and what's the sentence is going to be. Your job is to enforce the law. Um, it's, it, it works much better when police officers are allowed to use common sense and discretion to look for alternate ways to handle, you know, especially with young people. Some you can't. I mean, it, some of them are just so far out there, man. There, I'm not sure there's any hope for them at all. But uh, I, I just, I don't, I hate to hear that. I do and too. It's gotten to the point where I've had I've had officers in in large departments, four hundred members or more, tell me you can blow a red light in a car in front of me, and I will not pull you over as long as there's not a wreck. And I'm like, well, dude, what are you doing? You know, it's pretty. It's part of your job. I mean, nobody likes to work traffic that much, but that's part of your job. He said because when you pull somebody over, everybody has a camera, and everybody is out to antagonize you, try to get you to do something so they can sue you down the road to make you look like an idiot. And you know what? Having been in that position, that is a little, that's, it's not a little, it's extremely frustrating to the point where you might hesitate to do your job. Bottom line is that's your job. That's what you've been hired to do by the citizens of where you live. And so you need to do the job. And so guys, what advice would you have? You know, I was talking to uh, one of our local uh, elected leaders and expressing some of this frustration And what he said to me was he said that he thinks that most people in the area that I live, plus or minus, believe what I believe, which is we should have a benevolent society. We should be willing to help and support those who need that support, who want to do well and do right. We should believe in programs that reduce recidivism for those who have paid their debt to society. And when you do bad, evil shit, you're going to pay a very serious price. There's a reason Singapore has zero crime. There's a reason Singapore has zero fentanyl. And and there's all these people in uh, California and in the United States who say, oh, and out of the study show that that the severity of punishment does, isn't to, doesn't dissuade people from crime. I'm like, really? Have you ever have been you to fucking Singapore? The, have you read the back <laughs> of the customs form going into Singapore and other places? It says yeah. in, trafficking drugs into Singapore is a offense punishable yeah. by death. I've Listen, flown into Singapore. I, I've known surfers who tried to get weed through Fiji. Not a good idea. Anyway, my, my point is, <laughs> what do you advise, guys, the average citizen who looks at their community, their state, and their country and says what essentially I just said, we want to create a world that is fair, equally just, provides services to those who truly do need them because we want a safety net. We want to be benevolent people. And at the same time, if you break into my house, if you kill one of my best friends, if you steal, you do other horrible shit, you rape children. We have a child murderer and rapist where I live that because he did it when he was 15, 
is going to be out in less than 10 years, okay? So on one hand, we want to be benevolent and good people and supportive people. And on the other hand, we want to be so tough on crime that nobody thinks about doing anything stupid because if they do, they're going to suffer the consequences. And I don't know that we have to go quite as far as Singapore, but directionally, you understand my point. So if I'm somebody who wants to promote that thinking, what do I do? Well, look, you're in marketing, man. What, what's one of the rules about marketing? And I don't want to get into the old, you know, awareness, demand, preference, purchase, right? But one of the things is awareness, right? There are so many people out there, they just assume somebody else is doing it. They assume that this is happening. What you did when you took on the case with uh, Tushar and the things that you did, you took it out of this. I mean, you made people aware. You you became vocal. You showed up in court. And if we had more citizens, here, the problem is the silent majority. The silent majority gets overrun by the tyranny of the minority. And what when that happens is that a handful of people are allowed to set the dialogue. They're allowed to drive the narrative and create outcomes that are actually false outcomes because nobody's challenging them. Your makeup, your psyche doesn't allow that to happen. I mean, you call bullshit, you push back, right? Not everybody's like you, but if we could get more people involved, that's why I go back to community policing. I know you people used to say, well, the COP stands for, you know, supposed to be community policing. We called it NOP, nobody on patrol. Farthest thing from the truth, in a society with good community policing, you've got fair and equitable enforcement of the law. If you break the law, like Murph said, and I said, hey, use some discretion. But discretion is a finite resource. You don't get it infinitely. At, at some point you go, Okay, I let you go this time, but I warned you what was going to happen. It's the immediacy of consequences. It's just knowing that if I do X, Y is going to happen in a very direct, there's a direct line between X and Y, and then that the outcome of that will be Z. We People don't see that. To your point, you got people in jail now for four years. Where's the trial? When are we going to get to trial? What happens over time is we get amnesia. People forget the sense of urgency, the sense of urgency to solve this crime. You know, you. I remember it was an. It was October. I was pulling into a coffee shop, and I get a call from Christopher early in the morning, uh, about ten in the morning, seven year time. Where's that sense of urgency where people are willing to get involved? So for me, it's very simple. It's it's going back and looking up Sir Robert Peel and start saying, "What do I? What's don't don't I don't want to hear about what the cops have to do. What what am I responsible for? You know, I'm responsible for not sitting there and filming the fucking incident as opposed to calling 911. I'm responsible for actually helping somebody and not watching them get their ass beat. Why? Because somebody's video is going to go viral and I'm going to get some clicks on it. Mm -hmm. If you, I mean, if that, that's, I sit here and my wife knows that I'll be sitting here and I almost come out of my seat when I see them going, oh, look at this, what's happening? Some person just got killed on a street. You know why? Because somebody was filming it, recording it with their phone instead of taking action and at least doing I can get it. You don't want to get involved, but call 911, do something. No, it's more important that you got 50 people out with their phones as opposed to somebody using that phone, flipping it the other way and dialing 911. Uh, just we have lost. And that goes back to the kids. It's got to go back to the parents, the, the breakdown of the, quote, nuclear family. We got to get back to a solid parental family foundation, whatever that means. I don't care how you want to live. I'm fine with that. But there has to be a solid family foundation for the children and it's going to take years to get us back to where we want to be. This is not an overnight solution, but in, it will never happen unless we get people like you willing to step up and say, I'm a member of this community. I'm willing to do something about it. It will never happen until until the silent majority becomes the vocal majority. And just to, to add to that just a little bit, Chris, don't assume that people are aware that there's an issue. And I'll give you a, a perfect example. A couple of years before COVID, 
Javier and I teamed up with a group out of San Francisco. It was a lobby group that represented pharmacies and pharmacists, not not big pharma. Okay, and and so they took us to Capitol Hill two years in a row, once to the House side, once to the Senate side. Uh, they took us to the American Legislative Exchange Conference, where we got to talk to legislators from all fifty states. And our goal was to present them, is to educate them on the awareness of counterfeit medications. You would have been shocked. Now, this was not a secret. This was, you would think, especially people in a legislative capacity would be aware of this. You would be shocked at how few people even knew that counterfeit medications at, at that time were an issue. We were already experiencing the accelerated uh, overdose deaths because of fake pills, because you've got the you know the Chinese or the Mexicans or the Pakis or the Indians or whatever you know I call it Ashkrakistan country you want to pick that is is inundating our country with poison, and so I mean even one of them was a former police officer at the Alex conference, and he's came up and he's like man I've never heard of this I never heard anybody talk about counterfeit medications, and so now if you, and if you look back here in the last year or two is when. Awareness is finally coming out. You know, you got people like our good friend Derek Maltz, who is just pounding the freaking drum every day, who has become friends with uh, with Dr. Phil, believe it or not, to bring more awareness to what's going on with all the poisonings out there, who recently we uh, testified in front of a congressional subcommittee and and actually called out the one of the ranking members, which led into a, a little spat there, which is, I mean, you got to know Derek to, under, to appreciate this. But the whole point is, we can't assume that our legislators know what the issues are. That's why it takes people like you, people who are, are called a community activist. You're trying to better your community. You know, it's in our Constitution. We have the right to lawful and peaceful assemblies. We can go out and protest stuff like this. We can't go set shit on fire and we can't break windows. And we can't people up, pull people out of vehicles and beat them up, things like that. That's against the law. But we do have that right to assembly and a peaceful protest. So, you know, Again, just like Morgan said, you said too, the silent majority is killing us. And you know what? I've been a part of that silent majority way too long. Well, and on that note, Murph, I, I want to thank both you and Morgan for your podcast. And in a very specific way, I think most true crime, or let me say it this way. I think many true crime podcasts and media of any kind are pure fucking evil because they monetize murder. And the more sensational they make it, um, the more money they can make. And they glorify the killer. We all know Jeffrey Dahmer's name. I don't know the name of one of his victims. And so the murder monetizing media is one of the most disgusting parts of our world, in my opinion. And I have interacted directly with these people. And I will tell you, there is a special place in hell for them. And... What you guys are doing is radically different because, A, you're shining a light on the legends in law enforcement who brought this evil to justice. And, B, when you have evil on your podcast, you're not celebrating it. You're analyzing it. You're not celebrating these evil killers when they come on your podcast. You're trying to learn from them so we don't get more of them. And that's very different than glorifying and monetizing pain, suffering, and murder. And in that regard, I think you guys are highly unique 
in the broad world of let's just call it crime media. No, I, we we had the same early on. So we, I am disgusted by some of these other ones because they profit off the misery of others. And and you know we have brought on victims. We've had victims of crime. We've had people who have been the perpetrators of the crime, and we've had people who investigated the crime. We had Dave Reichert on. He he was the lead investigator on the Green River Killers. A lot of people know about Gary Ridgway. To your point, name one victim. You know, Ted Bundy, name one victim. Uh, There is this murder porn industry that goes on. And and in ours, really, you know, here's the hidden secret behind it. Um, We want them to tell their stories because that's you can't proselytize. If you beat people over the head and say, well, you got to feel this way, they're not. But when people hear these stories... And they hear the backstories like we're talking about. When you hear the context to Sherry Foster, a GBI, then a DEA agent, and hear her story about how she overcame. When you hear about Natasha Herzig and her story. When you hear about, um, uh, uh, I'm just, I, I was just, I'm sitting thinking about all these other guys. Um, I'm sorry, Murph, I just drew a blank. Who crapped no, his pants? I'm looking. I'm looking at the, our list of prior yeah. guests, and it's it's amazing the people we've had. One DE agent was shot in the head with a 7.62 round from a uh, uh, Al Qaeda guerrilla over there. Survived. He was a bodybuilder before you know through that, throughout his whole life. He's been a bodybuilder in competition. Today he's retired. He just won. He's got his world lifetime professional card, and I don't know what you call this stuff. I mean, he's still out there, you know, doing the best he can. He He's blind as a bat, still big as a mountain. He goes snow skiing. He goes hunting. He goes fishing. He goes bowling. I mean, how the hell does a blind person do that? But the point is here, he hasn't given up. And those are the kind of people we bring on the show that they face evil, I mean, in the face, man. And some of them, uh, our buddy in uh, Boise, Idaho, paralyzed from the waist down. He's Kevin Holtzfree. Has both legs amputated. It was funny. He's he's got a great sense of humor. He told us. I said, you're, I said, you you know, you're a Kevin. You're a big man. He said, Well, I used to be six three. Now I'm three eight. Well, his legs are amputated. So I mean, that's a sense of humor. It's a sick sense of humor. But as we're talking to him, because he still has a bullet in his spine, twice in a two hour interview, he just cringes for about two minutes from the pain, and he's got tears running down his his face. The second time, Morgan and I had tears running down our face because here's a brother law enforcement officer that's in pain and there's nothing I can do to help the guy. But those are the kind of people we bring on. And it's amazing some of the comments we've gotten where people say, initially, I mean, we'd been in less than a year, people were commenting, wow, I didn't realize cops have families and they have lives. I mean, it was was incredulous, but you got a message just today, Morgan, from one of our longtime listeners who was talking about decriminalization. She didn't, she said now she has a better understanding of, of what she was decriminalization. what's going on the ground in Portland. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so it's, it's, we're opening to people's eyes, not that we're trying to beat the drum of law enforcement, yeah. but we are, I mean, that's hell. That's my damn culture. That's my people. <laughs> we're still proud. Of, we're still proud of what these people do, but we want them to tell their story. Cause when you hear their stories, right. Um, it, it's about sitting around the campfire, Joseph Campbell, you know, uh, the man with the thousand faces, right? You know, it's it's all about the stories we tell around the campfire. And these are the kind of people you want to sit down and have a beer with. And when you hear their story, it's like it gives you a paradigm shift. It gives you a whole perspective. Um, I was just joking. One of the funniest stories we ever had on here was from a guy named Kevin Black. And he talked about crapping his pants. <laughs> it is the funniest story. But then he turns around, but his he was put up for adoption. He'd been looking for his adoptive parents. They were living one county away the whole time he was working in law enforcement. 
and he was able to go find just the just the people don't realize the, these folks go through a heartbreak too. They go through loss. They go through pain. They go through. We, we have many episodes. You remember the, uh, I don't want to give this guy the airtime, but the crazy former, not quite LAPD officer, but he went out and he shot and killed all those people, killed the deputy up in San Bernardino County. We had the guy on Alex Collins shot, I mean, almost killed with Claudia Polinar, LA sheriff, uh, her and her partner were ambushed. That's the other thing, Chris, just one last thing. This whole thing of ambushing the cops, they're sitting out there trying to do the job and you got people coming by with guns, firing into their car, trying to kill them. And Claudia Polinar, here she is, a rookie, still a rookie, got the presence of mind. She's been shot through the face, shot through the jaws. She can't even talk. But she's putting the tourniquet on her partner's arm to save his life. She thought about this guy first, and yet nobody knew she had a kid at home. She, Both of her arms were broken, and she put a tourniquet on her partner's shoulder. Saved his life. We even, you'll love this, Chris. We even brought my wife on so she could talk about how lucky she is to be married to a peach like me, you know? And that was the first 30 seconds after that we found out what was wrong with Murph. Well, yeah, and, and, and the other thing, maybe maybe this could be, a, if not the closing, my closing question, certainly one of them. Do you guys get a bonus for having those big-ass mustaches that you got? It's a beard. <laughs> I, I don't have a mustache. I got a beard, man. Well, you got both. I don't know what it is with you cops, firefighters, and mustaches. One of my, I have two close friends who are uh, retired fire chiefs, and one of them has the mustache, one of them doesn't. But there's a lot of big-ass mustaches in law enforcement and well, It goes uh, the back to the service. 80s and the porn stash, man. You just got to rock uh, the porn stash. You know what? When I, my, wife and I've been married, my wife and I have been married 39 years. I was a cop when she met me. I had a mustache back then. I've, she's seen me one time without a mustache. She said, don't ever do that again. <laughs> I have a dear friend who has a uh, what he lovingly refers to as a porn stash. He's had it. I've known him for well over 20 years. Anyway, his wife likes to tell a story, Murph, about how one time he was trimming it. And I guess he sort of caught it and it sort of looked stupid and he sort of had to shave it. And she said when she looked at him, she literally said it felt like I was living with a different person she woke up the next morning and looked at him and she said she was like afraid to be in bed with a stranger so he immediately had to regrow the mustache and to the best of my knowledge has never taken it off since uh, that's hilarious yes. mine started growing when i was in high school and you know and the girls thought would always comment and they thought well hey if the girls like it okay I'll, I'll yeah that's like what it. you were offering though murph that's what you thought was funny hey <laughs> free rides yeah it was it was, pe- it was peach fuzz back then you know <laughs> That's not horrible. All right, guys. Anything else we want to t- we want to touch on before we wrap? I want to say, and also in your newsletter, you say, "Can we disagree and still be friends?" You damn right we can. It's okay to have differences of opinion. That doesn't mean we have to hate each other. I don't know what your politics are. I have a somewhat of an idea of what uh, Morgans are. We agree on some things and we disagree on others. That's where I am with most people, and I assume that's where both of you are with most people. Mm-hmm. And so if and you have a different no opinion says on topic diff- X than I do, great. Let's argue. Let's discuss. Let's debate. Let's let's even get in each other's faces a little bit. There we go. But, what happened to the ability to have constructive arguments and debates with your friends and then go out and have yeah. a beer afterwards because we all learn something out of it? Well, yeah. and I know you're good. Absolutely. This is the other thing I don't understand. I know you're good people. Right. And so maybe you have different values on certain topics than I do. Uh, OK. Steel sharpens steel. All of the studies show diversity, diversity of thinking makes us stronger. Absolutely. 
otherwise you have an echo chamber. Hey, by the way, check your chat. You were talking about you want to see something that'll set your uh, um, uh, blood boiling. I sent you. Are you familiar with AB two fifteen? Uh, I don't know what that is. I, I know DX thirty nine twenty one. Well, check out check out this article, and you'll find out how many prisoners California released, including violent. Offenders. Is it seventy thousand? That's the number I've read elsewhere. Seventy six thousand. Yeah. Yeah. And that was you're talking about the props. Well, this was Assembly Bill two fifteen to release uh, prisoners, including violent ones. Some of them got their sentence reduced in half. Um, and, and people will say we've over incarcerated, but uh, here's here's something to think about. This is for a different show. You talking to expert on this. I had the chance when I was doing some news stuff to run into Charles Krauthammer. He was a longtime, you know, writer for The Post and uh, Fox contributor. And his degree was in psychology. He said one of the biggest things we did that was wrong was we deinstitutionalized the mentally ill. We tried to mainstream them into society as opposed to giving them a solid support structure. And if you want to know that, to me, final thought, one of the biggest challenges for communities is dealing with this. This is the, the impact on law enforcement. This is, this is why people got to get involved. Uh, cops, it takes it takes a minimum of two, if not four cops to handle a, a mentally ill person to get them through the stuff. And it's not a police problem, uh, you know, so I don't want to get it because that, that gets down a whole rabbit hole. But you should find people who talk about that and look at the rates of institutionalization when they went down and the kind of crimes that went up and the money we're spending to try and solve these problems that are not they're not law enforcement problems. They're community problems. Our community where I live, I believe uh, I believe it was twenty nineteen. To 2021, it was two, a two-year period. I might be a slightly off, but directly in that time frame. Spent $126 million on the homeless crisis. At the beginning of that investment, we had roughly uh, 4,000 homeless people in the county. At the end of that investment, we had roughly 4,000 homeless people in the county. So what did we accomplish? Well, and this is the other part. Some people got rich. Exactly. This is the part that nobody wants to talk about, which is there is a thing called the homeless industrial complex in California. And it needs the problem in order to get the money. And so it self-perpetuates the problem. And if it ever solved the problem, it wouldn't need the money and they would go out of existence. So ergo, the problem never gets solved because this is a continuous grift. Correct. And there have been people who have had 20-year careers in homeless services. Mm. Well, you know, that, and that goes the other way too with the welfare checks. I mean, West Virginia, and it's not just West Virginia, it's every state, but we know families who have multi-generational welfare recipients. And you ask these kids, even when they're in high school, when they're getting ready to graduate, what are you going to do next? I'm going on the draw, which means I'm going to draw my welfare check at the first of every month. And to the discussion on benevolence, look, We all know, and I don't know what the percentage is. I'm not a social scientist. There's some percentage of society that for one reason or another can't function in a way that allows a person to earn a livable income for one reason or another. Mm -hmm. And if those reasons are not, I'm a lazy asshole who doesn't want to do something. If they are what the, the, a reasonable person would consider a reasonable reason for not being able to earn a normal living. I think many of us, myself included, I'm happy to pay tax to care for that person. What we're not happy to pay taxes for is the, ah, fuck it. I'm just going to go on the draw because they're going to pay me to be an asshole. Well, there's a difference between a hand up and a handout. And a lot of people survive on handouts, but what I was telling you, 
you talk about how you can put compassion, but draw a line on compassion. Tommy Tom, Tommy Thompson, when he was the governor, I think it was Wisconsin, he ended up becoming uh, Secretary of Health and Human Services under Bush one, I believe. But what he passed a lot there, let me ask you, Christopher, you've got friends that have got kids, right? Say they have a family of two and they decided to have three kids. When you were doing your thing at Mercury or other stuff, somebody said, hey, great, we just got pregnant. We're having another kid. Did the company go, oh, hey, you automatically get a $3,000 increase in your pay per month. Here you go. Nobody's pay ever increased. But going back to Murph's point, why would people go on welfare or public assistance? Because for a long time, it incent it never incentivized you to get off of welfare. It incentivized you to stay on welfare because when you had another kid, guess what you would get? Another check. You have another kid, guess what you would get? Another check. And what Tommy Thompson said, hey, to your point, we're compassionate. We're going to help you out, but only to two kids. You have anything more than two kids, you got to make do with what you're getting because we don't get a raise if we have more kids. You don't get a raise if you have more kids. Gentlemen, I want to thank you so much for your life of extraordinary service and your continued service with the work that you're doing now. I treasure both of you. You demand. Same here, my friend. It's so good to see you again. It's been way, way too long. It's great to see you, Murph. And listen, let's just let's just make sure we don't go more than six months without talking about something. A common, tar- a common topic we could have is we can bust on Morgan anytime. Yeah, I'd like to say, you lazy bastard, the last time I was out in your area, you wouldn't drive the 45 minutes at 8 o'clock at night to come meet me. Okay, I did my part. I flew all the way across the coast, and Christopher's response was, man, it's kind of late for me. <laughs> I go to bed early, man. <laughs> I know, so do we. Uh, but it was early. Well, yeah, it actually was late for me. It was 11 o'clock my time, only 8 o'clock your time. But I'll drive, I was actually I'll drive anywhere to see I'll drive from here to Virginia if you want. I'd love to see you, Morgan. <laughs> And now we'll get, I tell you what, we may have something coming up where we, we're out that way. So we'll let you know. Oh, and by the way, if it's ever something that comes up and any of these um, law enforcement groups that you speak to or social groups that you speak to, if, uh, if it ever makes sense that they want to hear from the victim of a horrible murder and what it was like to go through it with law enforcement and the DA's office and all that stuff. Uh, I'm happy to share that story. Well, you have just fallen into my trap. <laughs> because guess what, Christopher? We happen to do this little podcast called Game of Crimes. <laughs> and I think, Murph, we should just turn the tables on him and bring Christopher on and let right. us put you in our format. Yep. And let's talk about that. Let's talk about somebody who came from Canada, yep, living a different kind of life, uh, came down here. And then to your point, uh, what is the process of how you got your eyes opened? What did it take? What did it, and not, I don't want to say eyes open in a bad way, but what did it yes. cause you to get that awareness, that insight that you didn't have before into what was really going on? So I'd love guess to. what? Um, we're going to, we're going to take this that helps, you know, when, when my brother from another mother was murdered, um, I, you know, after the initial shock, of course, but uh, I went looking for content on you know, somebody I love was just murdered. What do I do.com? And I really could find very, very little. I found a little, and I actually found one person who we could talk about, if you like, who was incredibly kind and helpful. But in general, I, it was hard for me at that time to find content or services that, that give any advice for people who are victims who are trying to support law enforcement in catching the bad guys in convicting the bad guys, how to deal with law enforcement, um, 
you know, et cetera, et cetera. I, I, I've had this first, this front row seat to this. It's the most horrible thing I had ever imagined. But now, now that I've gone through it, if, if I can help one other victim, one other family, then I would love to. You have just been added to the la- master list of potential guests on Game of Crimes. And right now, so, you're, oh, look, you're number one on the list. <laughs> Go, We'll get a hold of Candy and schedule something with you. And the great thing for you, dude, we're all set up with equipment, and it's the same kind of format. We just do Except this. Except we're going to turn the ask, we're going to ask the questions, and you're going to answer this time. Perfect. I, I would be my, in- my honor to be with such two legendary Americans talking about one of the most horrible and important things we could talk about. And so you have the right not to remain silent. We're going to get you on there. We're going to talk about these things. <laughs> People have tried to get me to remain silent for years. It's not working. <laughs> I, I you can my, even bring the chickens on the show. Bring the chickens. Bring the dinosaurs. Ab- absolutely. Uh, we, we got five new babies who are four, year, uh, four months old now. And uh, so we have our four old girls and we got five new four-month-old four okay. girls and have and, you got the Chick-fil-A vehicle driving around your property? No, we don't have that. <laughs> and Mildred and Ethel, our two eldest, just turned 10. Wow. What's the lifetime of a chicken dinosaur like that? That's way high. Uh, there isn't good data because nobody gives a shit, so they don't really track it. What our vet tells us is they're in the single-digit percentage, and, and that uh, our vet says she's seen one who was 15. So we're hoping for five more years with Ethel. And Mildred, they're wow. doing okay. They're a little blind. They're a little rickety. They're a little slow, but they're they're legendary and doing great. Well, enough about Murph. Let's talk about your chickens. <laughs> <laughs> All right, gentlemen. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. God bless you, brother. Peace out, bro. That was the legendary Steve Murphy and Morgan Wright. Their podcast is Game of Crimes. Check it out everywhere you get your podcasts. We'd like to thank you. And if you're in a position to help, please join us in supporting the people of Maui. Go to hawaiicommunityfoundation.org slash Maui dash strong. Today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes. This podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network, and it contains content known to the state of California to cause radically non-obvious thinking, new categories, and exponential results. All Oddcasts contain nuts, all rights disturbed. Please contact your doctor, lawyer, accountant, shaman, bud tender, and category designer before doing anything about anything you hear today. Everything is the way it is because somebody changed the way it was. Please be kind and rewind. Vote. And let's make crime illegal in America. Produced and edited by Jason DeFilippo. Sarah Knox and Jamie J are in charge of the technical execution and website. Show notes by GM Simon. RJ and EX Bobus do our web development. Cedric Beros does our graphic and web design. Our law firm is Weed and Jack. Our accountants are three balance sheets to the wind. We record on Squadcast.fm in Dolby ADHD. Dave Grohl was right. Listen to the Tragically Hip. Thanks, Candy Dandy. Love you, Mom and Dad, and hey, Colin, this podcast really ties the room together. Our deepest apologies go to Sam Bankman-Fried. Sorry, Sammy, we just ran out of time for you. Till next time, stay safe, stay legendary, and follow your different. <laughs>